founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reads with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.readdesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So we were just saying, we are both feeling the weight of the semester right now. Yeah, it's the kind of, it's kind of the time where you're like, okay, one hour at a time, one six hour chunk of things at a time. (laughs) Like people are like, what are you doing uh, a month from now? I'm like, I don't know. I'm looking at the next day, one day at a time, bringing my fire extinguisher with me. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and I feel like you and I try to not like complain a lot on Double Read Dish. We try to like- I feel like we do though. I feel like we do complain a lot on Double Read Dish. Well, I feel like there's a difference between complaining and kind of what we both happen to be feeling right now, which is just a sincere weight of the semester. Overwhelm. Yeah. You know, and so if y'all are feeling that way too, it's kind of typical of this point in the semester and things will get less intense and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And we, we feel it too. Drink water, get sleep, do your homework, get the things done that you need to get done. And then you can go back to a balanced life. Balance is coming, we tell ourselves. Balance is coming. (laughs) So Jackie, you had a really awesome concerto experience. What was it, last week? Last week. And yeah, I wanted to be sure to talk about it because it was really interesting. It went really well. I'm so happy with how I played. But I wanted to be honest because I feel like as performers, especially on social media, when we're aware of like cultivating our images or blah, 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 
that we can not always feel so comfortable being like vulnerable and honest. Mm -hmm. And I fully acknowledge that I'm only comfortable doing this because it went well and it's now over. I would not have (laughs) had this conversation like going into it, but I was struggling with performance anxiety in anticipation of this performance Mm -hmm. significantly. And you don't usually. Um, I feel like I've come to terms with it. Like the past two, three years, I have my tools and I've come to terms with it. But I think it was the combination of one, coming out of the pandemic and not having been live. Two, it being more high stakes. The concerto is kind of all eyes on you. You're relatively new in your job still. That I think is the biggest thing is this was the first time I had performed live on campus since my job interview. Mm-hmm. And so for it to be a concerto, um, it wasn't a student ensemble. It was actually a faculty ensemble. Uh, the composer was in the audience. Oh my and God, I just, how much higher pressure could this have been? Yeah. So like two weeks beforehand, I would get these like nervous palpitations or it was occupying my thoughts. And I was just feeling like overwhelmed by it. And that's an isolating feeling because at least for me, it's kind of like that speak no evil. Like I don't want anyone to know I'm feeling this because I don't want it to like be a thing that people think about me or wonder if I get the yips or um, like manifest anything. I want to act like everything's going fine and it's going to be fine. Blah, 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 blah. Perfection, perfection, perfection. (laughs) I was not feeling fine. And I did, I did what I knew I needed to do. I played for seven colleagues. Good for you. And I'll be real that the first two did not go in a way I was happy with. And I was like, Ugh. Um, and then I actually called up Benjamin Quelio and said, I want a lesson and went back into student mode and was just like, tell me what you're hearing. I can tell my brain is impacting my bassoon. And between, you know, that and just um, continuing to play for people and working through it, I came to a place where when I walked out on stage, I felt really good. I was focused. I was at peace. But that was hard earned and it was very distracting. And I struggled mentally and emotionally leading up to that performance. And I don't really have some huge like blah, la la thesis statement, <laughs> except that it occurred to me that it went well. I feel awesome about it. I posted pictures online about how what a great experience it was and that <laughs> no one saw behind the curtain at what it really looked like preparing it. And so I just kind of wanted to speak my truth that it was rough and it was hard. And so if it's ever rough and hard for you as well and you wonder, am I alone? Am I not cut out for this? Is this ever going to go away or, or whatnot? I I was feeling it too. And I was really struggling with it. And my ego was really struggling with letting people in about it. And I just wanted to kind of share that. It reminds me a lot of what Peter Cooper said when we interviewed him about his audition preparation Mm -hmm. and how he records every excerpt 12 times. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And the first time 
it's you have big things to fix. Yeah. And the second time you have big things to fix. And the fifth time you might have slightly smaller things to fix. But by the time you get to the 12th time, it's really tiny things. And you've done a lot of finessing. Mm -hmm. And it is so humbling to listen back to your recording. Mm -hmm. And it's really scary to play for your colleagues. Oh, yeah. I I actually in the middle of the performance, the first person I played for um, is Sarah, my trombone colleague. Mm -hmm. And I was actually in the middle. And the thing about the Stevenson concerto, if anyone else has played it, the first two pages are beyond the hardest. So when the first two pages went well, I was kind of it gets easier as it goes on. So as the pages went on, I was relaxing even more and more. And I remember thinking, wow, I feel so much less nervous than I did playing for Sarah that first time. And just being aware that (laughs) that first performance for a colleague was 300% worse and more nerve wracking and overwhelming Mm -hmm. than the actual gig. Yeah. It's like preparing to the point where you've already done the more stressful performances before you get to the previously considered most stressful performance. (laughs) Like the first time you perform, it should not be the concerto. Right. Well, and I believe it was it was Peter Cooper who also said that he doesn't allow him him or his students to think of mock performances that if you play it for someone it is a performance. And so that was one thing I was really thinking because after the first two, it started to go really well when I was playing for people. And I remember the whole day going, I have performed this well five times. This is just Mm -hmm. the sixth time, not Mm -hmm. this is it. And that was really helpful internal narrative for me. Yeah, I've also heard a story. I think it was the concert master of Philadelphia was saying that when he has concertos, you know, that's like the highest pressure it can get is playing concertos with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And uh, he was saying that he would go perform at nursing homes like he Uh would he would go perform it as many times as he could before so that it just ends up being just another time. Right. Exactly like what you did. Yeah. And that's really hard to get to get motivated to do. (laughs) Oh, it's it's really hard, but it's what ended up working. But it was not easy. But when it was over and it went well, I had several people remark the following day about how good of a mood I was in. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Wilson, you're in a remarkably good mood. I know. I was like, have I been in a bad mood? And then I I thought of our interview with Gustavo Nunez, where he said he's in a horrible mood leading up to like a big excerpt, like Rite of Spring or something like that. (laughs) And it's just the weight of the preparation and the intensity that you're carrying around with you. And then when it's over and it went well, it's like, I'm walking on sunshine. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also like none of your other responsibilities go away. Y'all? In that lead up time. Yeah. <laughs> so you just end up being mad about it. <laughs> yes. So uh, it went well, it's over, but it wasn't easy. And so I just wanted to have that little bit of vulnerability for the sake of solidarity, because certainly someone else must be experiencing that oh, yeah. and listening now. So, well, that was a little heavy. Thank you for being there. We, we wanted to have real talk. Real talk. But- we also want to have fun. So 
in the spirit of Halloween, I came up with some uh, a Halloween questionnaire, double read themed, for us to do. <laughs> these is, these are these are kind of funny. Okay. Um, so, uh, Galit, would you rather dip your reeds in lieu of water? Would you rather dip your reeds in apple cider or a pumpkin spice latte? I know you can't really do either because of your UC, but let's be in a universe where you don't have ulcerative colitis and you could do either of those things. Did you see me just like blink? <laughs> I would have to say a pumpkin spice latte because at least you get the caffeine. How about you? Yeah, same pumpkin spice latte. I love both though. I love yeah. apple cider and pumpkin yeah. spice latte. Yeah. Okay. Um, for Halloween, if you had to dress up as a hero from the oboe world, who would you be dressing up as? Diana Doherty. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was fast. My ultimate hero. Can I guess yours? Sure. Sophie Derveaux. I don't know how you dress up as her, though. You just like, what, look fabulous? Don't I always do that? <laughs> Yes, ma'am. What I would actually, maybe I would try to dress up as Norman Hertzberg because supposedly he made like the most phenomenal, amazing reads. And I would hope oh. that some of his juju would rub off on me via costume dress up. Okay. I like it. <laughs> All right. For trick or treat this year, we are transporting to an alternate universe where instead of handing out candy, we hand out double read themed goodies. So what oh, I would thought you, you were gonna say reads and I was gonna say absolutely not. Well you could you could choose reads. Um <laughs> but what would you choose to um distribute at the Countess Chambers household? I would distribute rulers. That's a good one. So that everyone would have good measurements on their reads. <laughs> Students your tone seems a little pointed right now. <laughs> what about yes. you? Um, I think I would hand out fun colored thread. Mm. I love how yours is fun and mine is just vindictive. Well, here's the thing. I chose that the same way I choose the candy I pass out because inevitably you have more candy than trick-or-treaters oh and so you get to enjoy the leftover goodies that didn't get passed out and I would most you can never have too much cute colored reed thread right <laughs> that is very true <laughs> um okay which orchestral excerpt are you the most haunted by <gasps> oh let's see these last two are kind of self-deprecating. <laughs> so the hauntiest, scariest excerpt is the oboe two excerpt from the Dvorak cello concerto. Oh, because it's uh -huh. low, low, it is low, and it is quiet. Uh -huh. <laughs> the other one that's haunty, scary is the Brahms Haydn variations oboe two part. Mm-hmm. Mm. 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 Same reason. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What's your scary one? Either like Beethoven four. It's just like so fast. And like there's no time to prepare. There's no like <laughs> mental. It's just like it's like, whoa. Okay, that either goes well or it doesn't. It's so fast. Um and then the other 
like I guess it's two type of excerpts like right of spring start the work stand and deliver all eyes oh, on yikes. you <laughs> I love a like chike four where it's like a beautiful solo but you have accompaniment you have support it's in a happy range I don't know. I guess I'm saying hard ones. I'm haunted by <laughs> the hard ones. So everything. Okay. Uh, our last Halloween question is, which skill on the oboe are you convinced that a black cat crossed your path when developing? Um, circular breathing. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it. But it sounds like somebody stepped on that black cat's tail. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't no smooth transition from <laughs> in to <laughs> out. <laughs> hey, I'm getting barrio sequins of flashbacks. So oh, careful. God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> What's yours? Oh, the high register for sure. Oh, God. E's and F's. I better get doubling pay for that. <laughs> doubling pay! Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleurie of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's obochicago.com. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish Mayu Isom, second oboe and English horn of the Houston Grand Opera and Ballet. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to you both. We always like to start by getting to know our guests with hearing how they came to their instrument. So can you talk to us about um, why you chose the oboe and how you came to it? Yeah, I think a lot of oboes can relate to this story. Um, I did not start off on the oboe. I started off on flute. I loved it dearly. I loved the melodies for it, but despite my love for it, I was not very good at it. <laughs> so um, naturally, my lovely band director, who I'm still in touch with to this day, her name is Miss Wu, um, you know, she could see I was very passionate. So she was like, why don't you play the oboe? And then that way you can work your way up in the, you know, the bands and get to the top chair and things like that. So I thought, okay. And so I went home and I told my dad, I'm gonna play the oboe. Doesn't know anything about it. He's like, okay, cool. And I come home with some, you know, Jones reads or things like that. And uh, I'm just peeping away. And I, I still remember my parents thought, what is she doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, Your teacher told you to do this? Yeah, it's like, are you making duck calls? No, no, <laughs> but, uh, 
but um I you know I after that though I did fall in love with it and I uh I remember specifically in middle school it was the first time I was in orchestra and I didn't realize that wind players because you're always starting off with band that you could be in orchestra and the role that the oboe had and I thought wow this is so cool I feel special it felt like kind of like VIP treatment and then uh, ever since then, I, I mean, I loved the oboe since then, but it was a funny way to start because I didn't even know what it was. I just thought it was another clarinet. <laughs> <Quite frankly. laughs> when, how did you decide to pursue the oboe as your career and maybe talk us through your training and educational journey? Yeah. So I, uh, initially in high school, I studied with uh, a man named Tetsugata. He currently plays at the Pacific Symphony. He also teaches a little bit at Colburn and at a couple other schools in California. Um, but at the time, he was a doctoral student at USC. And I uh, was taking lessons with him. I, you know, I loved the oboe, but I didn't realize that it was something that I wanted to do until I uh, was at an orchestra concert for my high school. I wasn't in the top orchestra at the time, uh, given that I was, I believe, a freshman. And I didn't know orchestral music that much other than the small things I had played. Um, and they were playing Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. Yes. And it was, yeah. And of course, everyone knows the beautiful oboe solo in Andantino. And it was my first time hearing it. And I just, I just instantly fell in love with that. And I thought to myself, like, wow, I will do everything and anything I can to get to play that piece at some point. And I mean, thankfully now I have many times, but but I just remember that memory so distinctly thinking I was so moved and I didn't realize that orchestral music could do that for me and that that was something that I could do. And so, you know, and of course, some uh, some people say that with music, it's like, well, maybe I wasn't good at anything else. And I enjoyed my academics and I enjoyed a lot of things, but I knew that music was something that made me feel um, at home. And it was something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Of course, I didn't realize all the other things that come along with being a musician and especially being a professional oboist. But <laughs> cough, cough, you know, read making. Right, exactly. <laughs> I didn't realize that that was part of the bargain, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm very thankful for that. Um, and then, so then after that, I uh, attended, uh, did my bachelor's at Indiana University and I uh, studied with Miss Linda Stroman and Roger Rowe. And I do think, Ms. Stroman, for most of my knowledge, the base foundation that she gave me uh, in terms of how to prepare orchestral excerpts, how to make reads, how to warm up. Um, she's just so thorough. And I, she, to me, we have an expression with our friends, we call her kind of like the oboe fairy godmother because she really does look after everyone. And when you're with her, you're in, you know, you're taken very well care of. Um, after that, I did my master's at Rice University uh, with, Mr. Robert Atherholt. Um, he was a great uh, mentor and really opened me up in terms of how to become uh, a more confident player. And then of course, all the other faculty members there are just fantastic. Um, and then I started my performance diploma at Boston University with Mr. John Ferrillo and Miss Anne Gabriel. Um, I am so in love with both of them. They are such uh, wonderful teachers that are the reasons why I think um, I was able to succeed in my auditions after that, just because they're so dedicated to their students. Um, and of course they represent such great oboe playing themselves. And uh, I then when my uh, position 
after the first year. So I did not finish the diploma, but uh, I do keep in touch with them and I try to learn as much as I can from them still to this day. So can you talk us through kind of the audition process, like how you got to where you are today? And especially our listeners love to hear about personal approaches to audition preparation and uh, how you kind of learned to audition over time or ways that you kind of were able to hit the ground running, just kind of your experience in that very particular unique uh, job pursuit. Sure. Um, if, if I'm being a little too vague, just let me know. Cause it's kind of a long question, right? Um, I definitely would say when I first, I didn't take auditions in my, in my undergraduate. Um, and so when I got to my master's, it was something that everyone had already done. And so I felt very kind of like a newbie. Uh, just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know it's like, okay, I have to send a resume, but what's an audition deposit? How do I get there? What kind of travel arrangements do I make? Um, so I think the best uh, advice that I have, at least for people taking auditions for the first time is to just talk to people, talk to your colleagues. Doesn't have to be the same instrument, but it can be um, and ask them, hey, how do I apply for this? Or how do I find out about auditions, right? Not everyone is joined with AFM right at the beginning. And so they don't know where these things are posted. Mm -hmm. um, I think having that humility to ask those kind of questions, it's like, yes, it is embarrassing to some degree of not knowing, but you might as well ask and find out and then you can start taking those auditions. Um, and then after that, I think, you know, some people, yes, they win a job right off the bat off their first audition. I think most of us though don't. And so when you, <laughs> unfortunately. I'm raising my hand. <laughs> but when you go to take your first audition, it's like, it's like going to see like a foreign country or going, you know, driving a car for the first time. It's like this whole new experience of like, oh, okay, so that's how this goes. And that's how this feels. You, you know, you think you know what it's going to be like, because you're like, I've done mock auditions and I've done, I've seen it on TV or or whatever, someone's told me about it. Mm -hmm. And you go there and the experience is so, um, it shakes you up a little bit. It's, it's definitely kind of like, can I do this? Everyone's really quiet and there's this big screen and I'm in this weird hall and are they gonna get me from my warm up room? Um, and this kind of goes along with all the additions I take is then I use that experience as, okay, what can I take from this? Because let's say I don't win the audition, right? The most I can do is learn from it then. So understanding like, okay, I need this amount of time to soak my reads or to warm up. So I'm not going to overdo my practicing um, or knowing like, oh, there's been a change with the audition list or there was a mistake in it or something. Just being able to kind of switch gears like that um, is incredibly insightful for future auditions. So over time, the more auditions you take, the more things become less of a surprise. Mm -hmm. um, trying to think of something else. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but other than that though, um, I, uh, yeah. And then of course, after the audition, no matter what happens, I like to reflect on it. I like to think, okay, I write down my thoughts of how I felt about that audition. How did I, I felt like I played, what could I have done better? Um, and so then that way it's kind of a, learning process for each audition. And I, I still do this with auditions that I take now um, 
because I mean, we all know it takes a lot of time and money and effort to be there to set up and, and play for anywhere between a minute to 30 minutes, you know? Um, so you want to make the most out of that. Do, do you have any um, like practice habits or approaches leading up to an audition? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I do different forms of mock auditions. So sometimes I'll do just a casual one where it's just like I'm at home. Um, you know, I, I'm recording myself, but there's nothing special about it. Like I'm in my regular clothes. Um, I'll make a list or I sometimes I just run through the whole list too. it kind of just vary it up. Um, other times I'll do mock auditions and I make it into a very formal setting, right? It's like I'm dressed up, I'm maybe in a different location or I'll, you know, pretend to wait in the hall for like a couple minutes just to like replicate that. Um, either I do that by myself and I record it, uh, or I have friends there. I still record it with my friends there, but, um, you know, the, and these are not just friends. These are people that I trust and also look up to, right? Because you don't, you don't want to ask anyone to listen to these things and give you bad advice, right? Um, these are people that I trust in giving me the correct information that I'm kind of looking for in terms of my playing um, and how to succeed. And, and maybe that they've also succeeded too. Mm-hmm. Um, besides that, I do, I listen to a lot of uh, different um, recordings of the excerpts that are on the list. So I'll make a playlist. It will usually say like, like I'll say like HGO, HB audition. And I'll have maybe three or four different recordings of, you know, whatever excerpt it is or the aria, or sometimes if I don't, if I feel like I don't know the piece well enough, I'll put the whole thing on there. Like uh, if it's like, if it's an opera, it's like, I, I feel especially for, um, you know, this applies to opera auditions uh, is you can't just listen to the excerpt and say, okay, well, I understand what's happening and I heard it, that's great. You need to watch the full extent, just like with a symphony, you wouldn't listen to just one movement or 30 seconds of it just to get the excerpt. You need to understand how it fits all together and understand the plot and the purpose. Um, So I highly recommend the listening part. And of course, then maybe about a week or so before the audition, I'll actually stop listening to it. And that's just to solidify my own voice, my own thoughts, then thinking, okay, this is the message that I want to play. This is what I want to say with my music. And so when I'm not listening to those recordings, then I'm able to really focus and hone in on that. Um, And I'll listen to, you know, other things that inspire me. Like, again, I'm a big opera person. So I love listening to some of my favorite singers um, unrelated to the excerpts. But that's like where I go, though, is to be like, okay, how can I be kind of like the diva or the solo voice because that's what they're looking for at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Can I ask kind of a tangential question? And if this is too like out there, feel free to No, no, it. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. No problem. <laughs> um, so you had mentioned that once you entered your master's program, you were developing your sense of confidence in your performances. And for me, the word confidence is super loaded as a self-identified anxious mess. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So I would love to hear more about your journey to confidence and what it took 
I mean, it's a, it's an ongoing journey, right? I'm sure it's like highs and lows and there's ebbs and flows of confidence, but what is, what is feeling confident in your musical identity and your performing feel like, and look like for you? And how did you get there? Mm. Yeah, I definitely relate to the the ups and downs because I view life in general, like a, a pendulum where it's like you swing all the way to the right and it's mm-hmm. all the way to the left. And then you kind of find yourself in the middle eventually. Um, so back in my bachelor's, I mean, of course, I think anyone can relate to this is most undergraduates are between the ages of what is it, 18 and 22. Mm-hmm. You're still trying to figure yourself out as an adult. You know, you've been living with your parents for the, for the last 18 years. Um, and you're, <laughs> you're like, what is happening? <laughs> like, yeah, right. And you're learning to be an adult and you're like, I can eat at any time and eat whatever I want and, and do whatever I want. And then you realize, okay, I need to like actually get my act together. <laughs> um, but for the longest time though, in my undergraduate, I, I feel like I was stuck in a student mentality of playing. Mm. It was kind of like, oh, I have to play this a certain way because that's what I was told to do. Or that's, um, that's what's quote unquote correct or that's what's going to be the most um maybe appealing is the right word because of course there's technically no right or wrong way to play things but there kind of is yeah you know with certain uh orchestral or or anything for that matter um and so I, I was constantly told like yeah like you know your playing is great but I want more I want more and it was hard because I I felt like I put myself in this box of like oh but I was told to play La Scala this way because this is this is the least offensive version of it. Unfortunately, that's not always going to get you to the places that you want to be. So, so when I got to my master's, um, and if, like I said, of course, every, people are older there, um, but the mentality at Rice is you're already a professional. Yes, of course, you're a student and you're learning and you should take in everything, but the standard that they uphold is so high that everyone goes in like guns a blazing basically like oh i'm gonna play this way because i i think that this is the right way to do it Mm -hmm. um that on the flip side and i and i do feel this for myself is that it's difficult though because then you take confidence and oh i want to say this and this is this is the voice i have is um sometimes a little bit maybe irrational or a little too boastful a little too um, a little too confident, basically. Um, and that was also difficult then for me to learn because I thought, oh, well, I'm breaking out of my shell and this is great and I have my own voice. But then I found myself, oh, okay, well, if I take an audition, they're not liking what I'm playing. And so mm-hmm. I thought, okay, well, this, this is not good either. And so you kind of start to feel, and then the insecurity, of course, then comes back. Um, and I feel like, once I was in Boston, that was where it was like, okay, I am a professional musician. You know, yes, I'm a student. I'm taking gigs. You know, I'm, I'm trying to win a job. But it's this kind of balance of I am confident enough to say my voice, but I'm also humble enough to listen to the advice that people are giving me, um, the humility to listen to what other people might want, whether it's a conductor or maybe like in a pianist that you're working with. Um, it's that balance of like, I'm tough enough to stand my own ground and say my own voice but again having the leeway to bend and listen to other people Um, that's such a fantastic point and I think that is like what gets you to a growth mindset mm -hmm. 
Right. You know, like I'm willing to make myself vulnerable and try this and then accept the feedback and take it in a positive way. Exactly. Right. It's not, you're not taking um, criticism or, you know, or advice and you're not being offended by it, which is what easily happens then to being like, oh, I'm confident. Right. You end up then becoming a harsh and hard shelled kind of person. Right. And that's not going to get you anywhere, especially as an artist, which is what we should be doing is we're playing for the audience, of course, and working with multiple kinds of people. So you have to have that ability to, you know, be flexible. Mm-hmm. And I just love that you, you broke that down into like stages of growth. It's like in order to get to the growth mindset of being able to take auditions and learn from them and then eventually get your position. It's like, you have to go one way and then you have to go the other way. And then you have to kind of find your way in between. And it's not as easy as just saying, well, just have a growth mindset. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not just an exponential growth of like, Oh, I'm getting better and I'm becoming more confident. It's quite often it's, I, yeah, I don't think of it as a vertical kind of growth. I think of it as, like I said, the pendulum of going back and forth and eventually you hit the bullseye then. And, yeah. and with life, of course it, you miss again too. I mean, I'm sure yeah. after things like COVID, you know, the taboo word, I'm sure a, lot of us are feeling, a lot of us are feeling insecure about our choices right now yeah. that we made with life. So, and that's just how it is. It's a, yeah. a constant back and forth. Yeah. I would love to hear more about, you alluded to this, but your experience auditioning for and winning the job you have now with the Houston Grand Opera. Um, We've had members of opera orchestras discuss before that the audition process is kind of Mm. different because it's not solely focused on the symphonic repertoire, that there are excerpts that are kind of um, new or different, or just the list is kind of um, less familiar. And then you also had oboe and English horn (laughs) as part of your, so um, yeah, I just wonder if you could tell us uh, about that day and um, about the uniqueness of that experience. Yeah, it is. Um, I will say that I'm thankful that I I happened to be an opera junkie (laughs) prior to the audition. But like I said, had I take had I taken a lot of uh, opera auditions before that? No. Um, And so it was a very new experience for me. um, Because you're right, it's not just like, oh, here's a solo, I'm going to you know, play like a solo player or, oh, this is the second position. I'm going to play a second. Quite often they'll put excerpts in there that are meant to be um, like accompanying a singer and how you would be flexible enough and yet still be a leader in that. And so it's this, it's this funky balance of, okay, I need to understand how much like push and pull can I play in this audition? Of course, I don't want it to sound like I have no pulse or rhythm, but you have to listen to enough recordings, for example, to understand, ah, oh, okay, a lot of singers take a breath here. Mm. Um, like in the excerpt in Aida, of course, everyone knows the, the long, lyrical, beautiful, beautiful solo in that, but there's this part uh, towards the end, it's these triplets, and they're kind of weirdly spaced out, and they take a little bit of time, and there's a reason why is because the singer sings here, and then he needs to, or sorry, the singer needs to breathe here, or the singer takes more time because of uh, just the way that it's done or the words that are, are implied. Um, that's a whole ballpark of, of, or a new depth that you have to look into compared to symphonic words. I'm not saying that 
with symphonic excerpts you don't do that but it's just another element to consider then Mm -hmm. um so I did listen to a lot of operas not just listen but I also watched I think that's also helpful is to understand sometimes the staging and and what is happening on stage um and just seeing their facial expressions too and and of course the the libretto and the words understanding the full context of everything um with uh let's see with English horn and oboe yeah, it, it is tricky. I, I mean, I think the, the first hardest part is just carrying everything into the Because <laughs> you got your oboe, and you got your English horn, and you got your reeds, and, and your stand. Uh, right, and your music. And I mean, it's just, it's a lot. <laughs> so it's a lot. To me, that was very stressful. <laughs> but, and of course, the whole walking process, like usually, I mean, the warm-up rooms are far, far away. So you're, you're walking what feels like eternity with all this stuff, and you're trying to make sure your reeds are soaked enough um that for any double audition whether it's you know for oboe and english horn or maybe for other instruments i'm sure it relates to practicing that in your mocks just being able to pick it up whether it's the oboe or english horn um first and then having to play the other instrument when it's cold is you just have to practice getting used to it and thinking to yourself it's partially mentality and partially um a, a physical practice of okay I can play this excerpt without having to do my noodle, right? And I do know that some people have uh, mixed feelings about doing a warm-up noodle on the second instrument. I personally don't do it, and I just think it's it's something that's unnecessary because um, because if you do a noodle, it's kind of telling the committee, okay, well, this person needs to warm up in, in order to play, and if you're in uh, work setting you can't do that I mean that of is course, such a good point right I mean and there are times where it's like yes you can maybe get away with playing a 2d passage on the other instrument to kind of just warm it up but, but not quite all the often, time right quite often it'll just be um I'm trying to remember what piece it was uh it was um at my work we were doing La Favorite by uh I believe it's Donizetti and um there was a, a, a section where it just jumps right into English horn solo and it's, it's horrifying, but there's nowhere else before it because there's this really quiet chorale passage. Um, I believe they're in a church um, and it's, uh, there's, unless I play way before, which then defeats the whole point anyway, you have to be able to kind of just be like, okay, I'm going to play this and it's going to come out and it's going to sound pretty. <laughs> yeah, the composer um, doesn't care. <laughs> right. Composer does not care. Right. <laughs> I'd love to hear about that day. It's so fun to hear about people's like I won. wins. Yes. You know, how to, how <laughs> does it feel to win? You know? <laughs> also true. Well, you know, and I, I've actually told this story uh, to a, a number of my friends and they all know it. And I, this was, I was in Boston and I had just packed up all my stuff because I had this big summer planned out, you know, and you put all your stuff in storage. And I remember thinking at the airport, like, wow, I really don't want to take this audition because I felt not prepared. I had been doing a bunch of concerts and I had a recital and a competition and I, you know, was focusing on that. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is the last thing I have to do. I'm not ready. And, you know, I, am I wasting my time? And I figured, okay, it's going to cost me more money to change my flight to not go. So I might as well just go. And worst case scenario, I can see, I have some friends in Houston, I'll see them. Um, and so I take the audition and 
it's it's the weirdest feeling when they call your number and you think to yourself like it's like bingo like wait that's me like that's my number and you want to hear me again <laughs> oh okay um you know and I I felt like I played well and so I thought like okay like this is great I can't wait to tell Mr. Frillo about this my experience and you know how I sounded and all this stuff and so I advanced uh into you know the next round and the next round and then um I remember sitting there waiting after the final round. It was me and one other uh, woman. I remember thinking to myself like, oh, I can't wait to, to tell my friends that I made it to finals. I'm probably not gonna win, that's okay. And I thought to myself like, I'm gonna go home and I'll like order a pizza and just be chill. And like, you know, today was a good day, like very simple. <laughs> um, and I remember that they came out and, and they told me that I had won. And it was, it was the most surreal feeling of just knowing like uh, I'm me, you want to, you want me to be here. You want me to move here and play with you guys, you know, and, and, and it, me of all people. And it's, um, yeah, it's an experience that I quite often think to myself of like, wow, I, you never know when it's going to happen, I guess. I mean, of course it's like, you want to sound good every audition. And there are times where I feel like I did and I didn't pass a prelim round and you're, you just have to be like, okay, well, that's cool. And I'm going to take it, and leave it. And then there are other times where it's like, oh, I, I kind of messed up here. And, and then you advance anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the experience itself, I mean, it's, it's stressful. It's scary. Um, at the time, the hall was kind of in a funky shape because this, they were still recovering from Hurricane Harvey, which was um, super tragic. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of their basement was they had all these cords out and they were, they were redoing all the electrical wiring at the time. And so that's kind of where mm. you stayed and warmed up. It was like a little, little, you know, awkward being there. Um, but uh, I, uh, it was at least nice to know that I had known some of the people there. And so I was like, okay, I, I've been here before. I know what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And uh, when you're in the audition process, um, sometimes they'll ask you to play something again. Some people say that's a good thing. Some people say that's a bad thing. Um, I think what mattered to me most was just making sure I made that difference clear enough. Like they had asked something like, could you play this faster? And I thought, okay, well, uh, I mean, of course not not too crazy, but but fast enough where they thought, oh, okay. So this person can play this a lot faster if, if need be. Um, mm-hmm. Things like that uh, were helpful. Also just hearing the committee speak I think also reminds you of like okay these are people these are not <laughs> this is not some robot or not some like political thing like it's just yeah. they're musicians like you who eventually you know might be your coworkers and friends um so just little things like that to remind myself um that and what I had said earlier about carrying all the instruments and stuff you know into the room I think taking the time also to like get set up is really important. I'm a, I'm the kind of person that gets anxious about, oh, I'm taking up too much space in anything in life. And so having the kind of like grace to be like, okay, I'm going to take my time to set up, sit down, put my instrument down, you know, make sure my music is, is where I want it to be in the stand. Uh, that those were things that were running through my head of just having that peace of mind to set up. I love having second oboe players on or really any second player, because 
it's so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us your perspective on great second oboe playing? Oh my, Um, (laughs) I'm trying my best. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I mean, I know this sounds like such a generic answer, but I think the most important thing is to have a a super reliable read. And it's just going to have to be um, efficient, uh, reliable in terms of response. I, there have been auditions in the past where, uh, and I, I do recommend both. Um, sometimes I will do the whole audition on one read. And sometimes I'll do it where I switch between maybe a principal read and a second oval read. And that's just based on um, kind of the bulk of the excerpts. So some of the other auditions I've done, there were more uh, prominent first oval excerpts. And I thought, okay, I really need to make sure I have a read that I can kind of like withstand on. Um, and the second oboe, I, obviously it needs to be light and delicate, but it's not gonna be able to play uh, like maybe Das Lied or something as robustly as it should. A thousand percent. Right. Um, it's like trying and- to play the Poulenc Sonata on one read. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, did he want, it should be written on there. It should be a read switch per movie. <laughs> <laughs> For real. <laughs> you would think, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we have said, they, they do not care. So <laughs> it's true. But um, yeah, uh, a lot of uh, second oval playing though is yeah, is being able to kind of have um, different personalities. And a lot of it comes down to yes, low, soft notes, but sometimes it also comes down to just being um, a supportive uh, support, supportive role. Um, I'm trying to think of well that's uh, part of the art of it isn't it it's like when do you when do you like push out and create a really solid base mm-hmm. to build on and when do you pull back and like weaving between the two can be so complicated yes absolutely and it comes you know a lot of it also comes with um color which I don't I don't feel like a lot of other instruments don't talk about as much as oboe does but having for example, um, in, uh, let's see, Dvorak, uh, Cello Concerto, the second oboe excerpt, I remember Mr. Frillo was telling me, uh, it's like, well, these notes are fine and this dynamic is fine, but you're, you're too bright is the problem and it's going to stand out. And I, I never thought about that. It's like, oh, it's not just piano forte or, uh, you know, like always oh, this in tune, but it comes down to, oh, I need a kind of more subtle darker color in order for me to blend on this excerpt versus maybe um and then another excerpt like uh let's say Brahms Haydn variations once you go to the forte section it's like you are part of the bass you know with the bassoons you want to make sure that that comes out a little bit more uh so that you have a a supportive foundation for your principal oboe um of course the audition they're not going to tell you that but when you start working I mean, I think it's important to ask your principal saying, hey, like, did you feel okay with this? Is this too much? Or, you know, you, it's important to have that communication with them. And most likely they'll tell you. And uh, my experience with, um, I, I work with uh, Elizabeth Priestley and she, um, you know, always either gave me advice or she was happy with it. And I think it's important to have that relationship with them because at the end of the day, they're also human too. And everyone has different preferences. And if they have an issue, I mean, then they'll tell you. You know, they're not going to go right off the bat saying like, oh, 
you didn't play the way I like. So I, now I don't want you here anymore. You I know, the whole love, point of- sorry, I interrupted no, no, you because I loved it so much. I love that the growth mindset and the confidence pendulum extends <laughs> to like every day in the job where it's like being open to criticism and still being able to speak your voice. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Having the confidence to play. I mean, I'll go from an English horn solo, which is by myself and having to be confident and have my own voice or thoughts versus when I go back to second boards and I'm being a supportive, flexible, um, cooperative player. Right. It's a double read podcast. So we got to talk about read making. Uh, Could you talk to us about kind of like uh, your habits, your approach, your philosophies, if there's any, you know, outstanding read advice you've ever gotten? This is the read question. (laughs) Um, You know, I will say I'm a little, I'm a little plain Jane with my read making. I, uh, I do credit Miss Stroman and Miss Duvas. I'm sure everyone has talked about their packet at some point on on the podcast. Um, about uh, their read making. And it's just kind of the very standard. It comes from the John Mack philosophy. Um, it's what I still pretty much use. Um, I will say that for English horn, I learned a lot from uh, Roger Rowe, uh, of course. And then I learned from actually from Robert Atherholt and he had played English horn for a little bit. Um, and he got his advice from Robert Walters, which you know everyone, uh, credits to as being a, a incredible English horn player. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of my experimenting uh, with English horn remaking. Uh, but a lot of what I do for that is reflective in what I do for my oboe reads. Um, going from student life to work life is incredibly different in terms of how you make your reads. Um, and I had talked about this before. Uh, I remember with uh, Miss uh, Gabriel in a lesson where I was getting frustrated with some of these auditions because of what I had said earlier. It's like all these different excerpts. And she said, sometimes for these auditions, you have to make a read that is like a B plus in every category. So it's going to be good in Mahler and it'll be good in Mozart and it'll be good in, in Ravel, right? Maybe it's not the one for a specific composer, but it's gonna do the job for everything pretty well. And then when you go to working, I found myself um, again, starting to get frustrated. I remember going to Mr. Frillo and I thought all my reads are bad and I feel like I'm, I'm not doing well at my job. What am I doing wrong? And he said, well, you have to make reads that are tailored to what you're doing. So for example, in, um, if I'm playing an opera that's let's say by a French composer, make a read that's a lot lighter. You don't need the read to do everything. You're not playing Wagner. You're not playing mm-hmm. some big heavy work. Uh, and then to that note, he also added, have reads for different sections. So uh, an easy example is Aida. There's a lot of, of course, robust marches and things like that. So you need a read that's going to have some gumption in it. And then all of a sudden you go to this super delicate you know aria and everything's soft and quiet and um and of course a lot of low notes <laughs> so have a different read for different uh move either different movements or different sections so i put it in my part when i need to switch reads i know okay exactly where i have enough time to kind of switch between the two and of course at that point i realized oh my coworker, my principal is also doing that and it just never occurred to me because i thought well maybe she's just testing her reads out no, no, no. She actually had 
realize this a lot <laughs> a lot earlier <laughs> um and it was it was uh really interesting to see that so then once I had that mentality in my reading making I thought oh this okay I can focus on oh this read's going to turn out to be a softer read or this read's going to turn out to be more you know impactful or whatever um and it gave me so much more peace of mind then because then it was kind of also more forgiving I was like oh not every read has to be perfect you know I can just have each read do its own thing um and then with, of course, again, with work, and, I, and of course, this goes with student life, too, is just being able to make a bunch of reads all the time, I think, is really important. Um, having your backups ready or having blanks ready, especially, I'm sure people know, for any <laughs> ballet spot, we do a lot of nutcrackers. You're not going to have time to make a lot of reads. So you just got to have to kind of prep up for that and just make a bunch prior so that over time, you'll have something you know, by the end of December. Um, I'm trying to think of any other read-related questions, but... Um, With a nutcracker, you make like 5,000 reads and then they're all <laughs> dead by the end of December. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's funny because the weather changes. So sometimes it's like, oh, well, this read that I had all the way in the back that I thought wasn't going to be good is great on this super dry day or something. Mm-hmm. So have yeah, don't throw anything then. away. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't purge your read case before the nutcracker. No, no. I, I highly recommend not doing that. So, um, yeah, things like that. Would you share with us, Mayu, um, a favorite memory of a past performance? Something that sticks out in your mind as super meaningful? Yeah. Um, this was at the beginning of my season. And we were playing uh, Rigoletto, which is a, you know, a, a fan favorite, maybe not like the most favorite, but it's a good one. Um, and they do something here at HGO called High School Night, where they bring out a bunch of high school students. Um, you know, there's like 50 school buses out <laughs> and, they, and they come and watch the opera. And I'm sure, of course, as high school students, yes, they were probably excited just being there and, and having a field trip at night, I guess. Um, but the way that they had screamed and, and were so excited to watch this opera was, it was like, I felt like I was like Justin Bieber or something. Cause they were, <laughs> they were so excited. And it was like, after every aria, I mean, of course the singer sounded beautiful. Um, but they were just so excited, so thrilled and, and so, uh, captivated by it and and they were a very respectful audience too it was like there was no like chit-chatting or or whatever you know because sometimes with it happens in any hall right there's someone who has a cell phone that goes off or whatever but they were all you know dead silent during the music and then at the end of each you know aria or, or act they just were screaming their heads off and that feeling of wow like this moment might be changing someone's life or someone's opinion about classical music, about opera, thinking to themselves like, oh, I, I can watch this or I could do this. Um, it's just, it reminds me of, of the experience I had when I first heard Tchaikovsky 4. And I thought like, wow, like that was so beautiful and so moving. And um, it just was a really nice musical experience to feel that appreciated. And of course, I'm not saying that regular audiences aren't that way, but you kind of get a similar crowd. Um, and I, I do hope that in the future with other, for both symphony and opera, that we do get more people 
younger people, people of different classes, things like that to come and listen and enjoy it. Cause I don't think it's for just kind of, you know, the, the usual crowd I'll say. Um, and it was just a really wonderful night for sure to remember. So I love that. Yeah. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career ah, like yours? A good one. Um, and I, I still take this advice for myself today, but I highly recommend it, of course, for, for young musicians is um, having uh, the confidence to take risks, and make mistakes. And I know that sounds maybe cliche, um, but I can't tell you how many times I look back on my life and I thought, wow, I didn't take that audition or I didn't take that opportunity because I was scared that I was going to mess up. And what ends, what ends up happening is you end up closing that door and you end up only having that closed then. Um, you know, I was so scared of rejections and um, I'm sure you both know with like summer festivals, I mean, any audition for any festival is difficult, but some of the quote unquote elitist ones like Music Academy and Tanglewood and, and whatever else, um, you think to yourself, oh, I'm not gonna get into something like that because I'm not good enough or I don't come from a fancy school or, or whatever reason. And you know what, then what ends up happening is, yeah, then you will be rejected because you didn't even apply. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish that mm-hmm. I had taken the time and, and yeah, the time back then to, to apply to those things earlier on. And I, I mean, of course, I don't know if I would have gotten in back then either, but at least then I would have tried and I would have known. Um, so when you close those doors, yeah, there's, then there's no opportunity for you to have a yes or to get something. Um, same thing applies for even just if you're in high school or middle school, if you think to yourself, well, I'm not going to apply for Allstate or I'm not going to do this solo ensemble because I might get a bad rating. You know, you're limiting your, um, your chances of, of more doors opening and you never know who's listening also. The same thing applies for, uh, you know, gigs or uh, working with other musicians. You think to yourself, well, I'm not good enough to, to do this. Well, they'll, they'll never know then because you didn't, you didn't take the opportunity to, right. to show them that. And of course there are times where it's, yeah, you will have rejections and you will have mistakes and you just have to kind of take it and say, okay, well, at least I know that that happened and I can learn from that. And then you move on because it's not the end of the world. So. I love that so much. Oh. <laughs> Mayu, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. I can't believe this was an hour. It was yes. so great to talk to you. We really appreciate you spending the time to share your thoughts on oboe and music. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I hope that uh, we can talk again in the future another time. Oh, for real. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed that interview. We know you did. Uh, don't forget to follow us on social media. Don't forget to vote in the read competition on our social media. If you haven't checked out that Halloween merch, you can do that at our website where you can also join the consortium if you've not done that. Like and review on iTunes, social media, blah, 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 all the stuffs.
Galit, who's on the next episode. <laughs> so official and fancy. <laughs> our, our next guest is the vivacious, the lovely Shannon Lau, assistant professor of bassoon at the University of Florida. And yes, Lau is how you say it. Yes, it's Lau. We've confirmed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie, end this nerd parade already. Go make read. Ooh.